Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of God. Good morning, everyone. I uh, love that story. Uh, as a Canadian teen, growing up in the late 80s, I watched a lot of Monty Python. For those of you who don't know what Monty Python is, it is a British comedy group that had a uh, famously very strange and over-the-top sense of humor. So not everyone's bag, but I liked it. And um, this interaction between Jesus and the mother of the sons of Zebedee, I think, could easily have been made into a Monty Python sketch. Now, Barry, this is just to I'm put a little warning on here. I'm not making fun of Barry in this next what is to come. I apologize. You'll have to all try to erase the next few moments from your mind, but I'm going with it anyway. <laughs> so, so here's Jesus. There's a group of people, right? He's walk, walking. He's walking with a group of people. They're heading to Jerusalem. Jesus knows this is heading to his death. And as they're walking, he actually pulls aside the twelve out of the big group, and so he's just huddling with these twelve, his twelve disciples. And he's like, "Hey guys, come here. I've got something I need to tell you before we get to Jerusalem." Two of these twelve, as we know, are named James and John, the sons of Zebedee. These are brothers that Jesus had actually given the nickname Sons of Thunder. Likely, this means that likely they were loud, hot-tempered, rash kind of guys, right? Sons of Thunder. So to this group of 12 that he pulled aside, Jesus says, we're going to go to Jerusalem where the Son of Man, that's me, will be delivered over, I'll be condemned to death. I'll be mocked and flogged and crucified in a horrific way. And then on the third day, I'll be raised to life. And at this point, the Sons of Thunder's mummy pushes into the Twelve, right? She wasn't there. She actually pushes her way into the Twelve. She goes, um, Jesus, can you do me a favor? That's my, that's my Monty Python impersonation. 
Jesus, um, what is it? When you're king, can my son sit beside your throne? Um, did you just hear what I said? You know the little bit about me dying? Oh, yes, well, but I want to know is, when you're on your throne, can my son sit one on each side of you, you know, one on um, the left, and, you know, um, one on the right? Um, I'm sorry, but were you, were you listening to me? Do you hear that little bit about the suffering and the beating and the dying and all of that? You know, it's terrible stuff, really. But you're going to be king, right? Do you hear? Wouldn't my sons just look lovely? I just see them there. Rest in the purple robes. It's so lovely. Um, you, you really don't know what you're asking. I do not think I mean what you think I mean. <laughs> That's another 80s movie joke, by the way. So obviously, I'm playfully exaggerating. And quite frankly, I'm not making fun of this woman. I'm making fun of myself doing a terrible Monty Python impersonation. But I'm not making fun of this woman. In fact, her response was, was quite, was totally natural. Because what Jesus was actually trying to tell them was so opposite to, so opposed to, so incongruent with what they thought was going to happen to their long-awaited king. What he was saying made no sense. It would have been, so it would have been illogical for the mother or for any of them actually to come to any other conclusion. And what loving mom wouldn't want their kids to be central to the Messiah's kingdom, right? We read all through the Gospels that Jesus' followers, they consistently cannot understand what kind of king Jesus was. The first time Jesus told his disciples that he was going to suffer and die, Peter tried to rebuke Jesus. Peter was so sure what Jesus said couldn't be right that he actually told Jesus, you're wrong. That is not going to happen. And then when Jesus takes the role of a slave to wash the disciples' feet, Peter tells him, what are you doing? No way. You can't do this. Later again, when Jesus talks about dying on the cross, his followers ask to be his right-hand men, to have the power and the authority of being beside the throne. When Jesus speaks about being betrayed, they actually fight over which one of them is the greatest. I mean, that's another conversation that seems just humorously ordinary and completely out of place for what a significant moment in time. I mean, Jesus tells them one of them's going to betray them. So naturally, at first, they begin to question among themselves which one the traitor is going to be. And, oh man, whoever that is, that, that guy's the worst. Well, it obviously isn't me because I'm the best. No way, man, I'm the greatest. No, it's not me. I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved, so it couldn't have been me. But just as the disciples' misunderstanding of the servant nature of Jesus' messiahship is consistent, so Jesus' response is always consistent. And his response is always consistently opposite to what human expectation is. The greatest among you shall be like the youngest, the one who rules like the one who serves. I am among you as one who serves. Put away your sword. Don't fight to defend me. Unless you let me serve you, you have no part with me. And if you do have a part with me, then you will go and you will serve others in the same lowering way. Anything else is not to have the mind, in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. 
Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Anytime the disciples perceive Jesus' kingship as, as the expected king coming in uh, fiercely in battle and, and, and winning, he reminds them the greatest is actually the least. The least is the greatest. Whoever wants to become great among you must be his servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. I've not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Over and over and over, Jesus not only told them with his words, but he showed them with his life that he was an anointed king who is servant to all. There was no one too low for Jesus, the anointed king, to serve. That he was humble and gentle in heart. He was gentle and humble in heart. That unlike all human rulers of the world who wield their power and authority in dominating and power-hungry ways, Jesus' kingdom was to be one where the king humbles themselves even to the point of death. Again, it's understandable Jesus' disciples would have had a hard time understanding this. They had been raised as Jews their whole lives to put their hope in a coming anointed king who's going to ride in on war horses, who's going to obliterate the Roman oppressors and establish a Jewish kingdom, just like when their ancestors entered the promised land, slaughtering everyone who got in the way. Peter and the sons of thunder especially might have had a hard time because we know in Matthew 17, less than a week after Jesus told them that suffering and dying was where his kingship was taking him, Jesus took the three, up, three of them up to a mountain. And Matthew writes this. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. And if you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And while Peter was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw, saw no one except Jesus. Now, as a side note, but a related note, and I think important for us as we read the Gospel of Matthew, a theme throughout the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus actually presented as a new Moses. Now Moses, for those of you who don't know, is the one whom God used to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Israelite, the one that God used to give them the laws, the Torah, um, that would define them as God's people. And it was Moses who was leading them up uh, to the promised land, or at least to the edge of it. And Matthew points out that Jesus, like Moses, was almost killed as an infant by a tyrannical leader who decided to kill all of the newborn Jewish males. That Jesus, like Moses, fulfills the prophet's call, out of Egypt I have called my son. 
Jesus' baptism, which took place at the River Jordan, was a literal and a symbolic place where the Israelites first entered the promised land. And so it is mirroring, Jesus' baptism mirrors the Israelites entering the promised land. Jesus, like Moses, fulfills the... Oh, sorry, I went back. I'm going to read the next last three minutes again. I'm just kidding. Jesus, like Moses, Jesus in the desert for 40 days, being tested and tempted, mirrors the Israelites being tested in the desert for 40 years. Jesus begins his ministry on top of a mountain teaching Torah. And Matthew wants us to know this is like Moses is redeeming God's people. The Moses is redeeming God's people began at the mountain where he received and they gave the Torah to the people. Jesus teaches five long speeches in Matthew, just like the Torah given to Moses had five books. And I suspect this is why the Gospel of Matthew is the Gospel that tells us that Jesus says this. I just I put my marker in the wrong spot. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Speaking of Moses, the Bible actually tells us in, in Numbers 12, 3, Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. I am gentle and humble in heart. Once again, Matthew is revealing Jesus is the new Moses. And I think in Matthew, Jesus is identifying humility just like Moses as an integral part of his character. So then we come back again to the transfiguration of Jesus where his face shone like the sun, his clothes became white as light. The presence of the two greatest heroes of faith are there to declare Jesus' authority. And a bright cloud covers them with a voice that says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. I mean, this is a pretty glorifying moment. It's exalting Jesus and affirming him as one who is above all. And so when we hold side by side Jesus saying that he came to serve, not to be served, and this gloriously exalted Jesus, it's no wonder that these disciples continue to be confused. I mean, which one is it? Servant? Glory? I mean, in our human understandings of power and authority, it doesn't make sense. We have the same confusion. Humble? but yet powerful, servant, but yet glorious. So we assume that if God, if who God is, is actually power, then this humble part just has to be something God does. It's not actually who he is, but it's something he does. Something he kind of puts on like a sweater or a cardigan. That God is actually glorious, that is who he is, but this servant part is just a role that he plays but why can't perhaps even the opposite be true? Why can't God actually be humble and the power is something that he does or he puts on? Now, I don't think that's the case. I think more truly what I think is a healthy biblical understanding is that God is humbly powerful or powerfully humble. That humility and power are not in opposition from one another. But that God and Jesus shows us that the way God wields power 
is not the way we humans like to wield it. But that God wields power in humility. This is hard to get, it was hard to get my brain around, but here's a question for you. What is God's greatest display of power in the entire Bible? The greatest place of power. First Corinthians tells us, I think, that the message of the cross is the power of God. The place where Jesus humbled himself to the point of death in the most painful and humiliating ways that humans could come up with. This was the place where God's power is most profoundly revealed. Perhaps the cross is a place of God's power isn't a paradox. Perhaps it isn't two opposites coexisting, but perhaps the cross is actually the most congruent, integrated understanding of power that there is. We humans just have no way of actually understanding it. Sam Chase, who's been a part of our community for a long time, he recently had an article published in the Journal for Applied Christian Leadership on Servant Leadership. And speaking of the servanthood of Jesus, Sam writes that Jesus retained the title of Lord. He did not abdicate his power, but he used that power to serve. He goes on to say, Clearly, Jesus saw himself as one who served, but he was also Lord. Jesus served his father and he served his disciples, but not in identical ways. He did not take orders from his disciples or he seek their input. He still used power. That must mean that using power and serving are not opposites. Power is neither ignored nor abdicated, but is used to serve God and others, not to serve oneself. There's no indication that this relinquishing power or that, that this is relinquishing power, or that this is equivalent to weakness. Even the well-known hymn in Philippians does not speak of Christ giving up power, but of giving up glory, becoming a servant, and sacrifice. Perry Shaw stated, It is noteworthy that the central act of power recorded in the New Testament is an act of humiliation, the cross of Christ, the power of God unto salvation. Humility is not giving up of power. In fact, it is the cross. It is full of power. The cross is an act of love, and love and power are not opposites. Jesus was above everything. I mean, literally above everything. Yet he was not above lowering himself to our state. This wasn't good acting. It's who he is. For Jesus, who is fully God throughout all of eternity to bring himself low, is who he is. This is his authentic and natural, or perhaps extra or supernatural, way of being. And I think for us to even begin to grasp this and to ponder what it means for us to live out Christ-like humility, we need to reframe our understanding of what humility is. Too often we've thought that being humble means having low self-esteem. As if thinking of ourselves as garbage or as worthless is humility. But that's not humility. Or we think someone who is humble is someone who is a pushover or weak, doesn't stand up for themselves. Let's other people just kind of push their way through. And usually this is because of a lack of self-confidence. But humility isn't thinking poorly about yourself. 
Humility isn't a lack of self-confidence. Humility is actually thinking rightly about yourself. Key to humility is having proper self-assessment. But a self-assessment that's free from pride or arrogance. It is having proper self-assessment in our relationship to others. Not in a competitive way or comparative way, but not in a belittling way. But in a way that actually values others and lifts up others. You want a quotable? C.S. Lewis famously said that humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. If you walk away with nothing, put that in your pocket. Not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. In a Forbes article called Why Humble Leaders Are Rare, author Thomas, I'm butchering his last name, my apologies, Thomas Chamorro Music writes that humility is a positive self-assessment without entitlement, without a sense of superiority, without negative evaluation of others, without narcissism, which is an entitled self-importance, without an inflated sense of self-importance, thinking the world revolves around you. Not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Jesus God of God, light of light, sustainer of all that exists, knowing he was worthy of all glory and honor and power and authority, he did not look at the world to see how messed up things were in creation and just go, I'm too good for that. No. And he didn't go, I'm too good for that. Let me send some other people to deal with it. (laughs) He did not think that the cosmos were below him. But instead, he who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant or slave. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And in this same way, we are called in our relationships to have this same mindset as Jesus. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others as above yourselves. Not looking down, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have this same mindset as Christ Jesus. To serve as Jesus has served, humbly knowing who you are. Humbly using what power you have. Jesus never lost sight of who he was, but yet he is humble. Power often is defined as the influence that you have. Martin Luther King Jr. famously said that power is the ability to achieve purpose and to effect change. And so humbly using that power, not for your own gain, but for the sake of others. Humbly using what influence or abilities you have, not to be over others, but to humbly lower yourself to serve them. We often think that power is power over. But instead, God humbly, instead godly humble power is not power over, but power for. And power with. 
and power that lifts. So instead of trying to raise ourselves up, power is trying to lift up our fellow human beings. True godly power that is identified with humility is lifting others up. This, as Henry Nouwen says, is the difference between false ambition for power and true ambition to love and serve. And we see this ambition for false ambition for power um, all in the, I mean, we see it everywhere in the world. And sadly, and too often, we see it in the church. I mean, how many times in the last few years have we heard of megachurch pastors using their power in, in, the, in unhumble ways? Part of this is because we as the church, we've allowed for these kinds of false ambitions for power because we're content and happy to see our church grow. I mean, this person is bringing in tons of people. We're getting tons of money, right? We're having people, we're having influence, we're, we're having influence over our culture and our city. Why would we look any further? This is awesome. And they're preaching from the Bible. Like, win-win, right? But yet, even in the midst of that, when that, that misuse and misunderstanding of power is even just tweaked slightly, there hidden in the darkness is this freedom to grow and to breed unhealthy understandings of power, using influence for self-gain. This is why it hurts when the church wounds people because the church if anywhere else we should find not trying to raise itself up not trying to get influence over others but the church itself should always be trying to raise others up giving up self for the sake of others this is the profound difference between the ways of the world and the ways of Jesus this way the humble way of Jesus of course, has a cost. I mean, having a servant mindset of Jesus is not easy, and it comes at great cost. I mean, it led Jesus to the cross, and it leads each one of us to lay down our ambitions for self-gain, humbly using what power and influence we have to affect change and to achieve purpose that do not simply serve ourselves or our own or people who look like us or sound like us, but that serves others that particularly serves those who we think of as other or different than us. So I want to ask you this question, where do you have power? You might not identify it. Maybe you're too humble to identify it as power. But where do you have influence over others? Where do you have the ability to achieve purpose, to affect change? I mean, we all do. I'd encourage you to reflect on that, to ask God reveal where you have power and influence, where you can affect change and achieve purpose. And then thinking of the humility of Christ, how can you do that, use that to serve others? How can you use that to lift others up? To be slow to seek attention for yourself, slow to get the credit, and instead to put status and ego aside and seek to affirm and to lift up others. Now, as we reflect on that, 
There is one last important part of humility. Well, I mean, there's so much more, but one thing I'm going to mention (laughs) is that unlike Jesus, we are not God. And I think this is another mistake the church often gets confused, (laughs) right? Sometimes the church thinks that it is the Savior, that we, God's people, that the church is an organization, is salvation. But we are not God. We do not have the ability to save people. We have a lot to offer to God and to serve others, yes. But we are intrinsically dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit in the abiding presence of Jesus. Humility in that, in that true and honest self-assessment knows we know our weaknesses and we are not God. It seems like an obvious point, but I think one that we lose sight of. Apart from Jesus and the Spirit's presence in us, we can actually do nothing of deep or lasting purpose. And this is a gift, for we can actually rest in the reality that it is Christ's strength, not ours, that will accomplish this. What Jesus asks of us is not to carry the world, but to love it. Not to save the world, but to serve it. And not to do it on our own strength, but by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And it takes great humility to accept that God isn't as dependent on us as we'd like to think that God is. But there is great peace and freedom when we can accept this. Because although there will be a cost, our taking the posture of servants is not to be a burdensome striving on our own strength, but instead we can have the humility to take on the yoke of the one who is gentle and who is humble in heart. We're going to take um, a few moments of stillness uh, to give uh, you space um, to hear from God, um, for for God to speak or to direct your thoughts. And after the silence, if you are comfortable, uh, we will read in unison. um, This is one of our church values. Uh, And so if you're comfortable and if this is a prayer that, that rings true for you and who you want to be in your walk with God, Um, We will read this value in unison as a prayer of offering together. But I'm going to leave just a few moments of silence to invite God. um, Part of, I mean, it's part of, part of something that's humbling about standing up here. (laughs) Sam Chase actually said to me this week, um, someone who had said to him, when you're preaching, prepping for preaching is not take yourself too seriously. The shelf life of a sermon is like three minutes. (laughs) Shelf life means like how long it actually like resonates. So I can spend all these hours prepping, but the shelf life is three minutes, (laughs) right? Takes humility to accept accept that. Um, Why did I say that? Because (laughs) if anything is going to be received to to resonate in your spirit, as much as I want to offer my best to God, as much as I want to be faithful Uh, in my preparations, the only thing that's going to make any difference is what God resonates in your uh, your spirit. And so I'm just going to take a moment to allow, uh, give some space uh, for that, and then we'll pray this together.
Let's pray together. We believe in a humble God who came not to be served, but to serve. Therefore, we engage in sacrificial and active service to those around us. We strive to be good stewards of the God's gifts and talents by serving one another in humility. We aspire to regard others as higher than ourselves, which liberates us to creativity, take risks in serving others for God's glory. Amen.